Although American Civil War and UK history is a hobby, there are small costs associated with running a podcast. So if you enjoy our content, please support the show. You can do this by pressing the support the show button or pressing on the link to buy me a coffee in the show notes. Thank you for your continued support. Daz, American Civil War and UK history. Cheers. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the American Civil War and UK history channel on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. Joining me today is Sarah Byerly. Um, so, um, who has worked for the Central uh, Virginia Battlefield Trust for the last one and a half years, but has also been involved in battlefield preservation for the past 13 years. So Sarah, just tell us a bit about that, please. Certainly. So I was interested in the American Civil War from a very young age and actually made my first donation toward battlefield preservation when I was 14 and uh, have advocated for it ever since. Um, it was really special, very exciting to be able to come on staff at Central Virginia Battlefields Trust and work on saving battlefield land here at Fredericksburg, Chancellorsville, the Wilderness, and Spotsylvania Courthouse. Cool. Um, so, um... It's a big year for Central Virginia Battlefields Trust. It will, you will be celebrating a uh, big anniversary this year as it's your 25th birthday. So happy birthday. Yes. Um, Sarah has also written a book about the Battle of Newmarket for the uh, Emerging Civil War series. So please tell us a little bit how you got involved with all this, please. Certainly. So my research on Newmarket is obviously a little different from working on uh, the battlefield preservation here in Central Virginia, but it's all part of the same conflict. And I do like to refer to the Battle of Newmarket as the far extended flank of Lee's army in the Overland Campaign. So I have a great interest in history of Virginia's Shenandoah Valley. And the opportunity came up to do a book for the Emerging Civil War series. And I quickly pitched the Battle of Newmarket. Um, it's a conflict that's probably best known for the involvement of the Virginia Military Institute cadets. Um, they filled a gap in the Confederate line and helped to secure a victory for General John C. Breckinridge. And so the book focuses on that as well as the other units, the battle, um, there are short chapters, easy to read, lots of pictures, notes, if you have an opportunity to tour the battlefield site. Um, I did actually manage to tour it once, actually, in 2007. Um, there's a, um, I watched a little video and, you know, introduction about the battle. And there's a little house there where you can visit as well, is it, isn't it? I can't remember now. It's a little while ago now. Um, but, yeah, it was quite good. Anyway. Yeah, that was. Uh, I really enjoyed that. Yeah, it's because uh, it's called the lost. Uh, the uh, was it the field of lost shoes or something? Yes, it is. It's called that since it was so muddy that day of the battle. Um, the shoes were actually being pulled off the cadets and other soldiers' feet as they were moving across this big open field that has a particularly low area. Um, one of the days that I was out there doing research was after a bunch of rain, and I can tell you the water still puddles out there. And the colleague I was working with that day, he was trying to dare me to go out there and see if my shoes would get pulled off, but I decided I'd 
probably would skip that experience. <laughs> yeah, that would be a good idea. Um, okay, so uh, now a couple of weeks ago, I saw a post on the Central Virginia Battlefields Trust Facebook page. Um, and if you haven't liked the page yet, please go and find it. Um, I will put links underneath on the descriptions afterwards. Um, and it was about winter camps, uh, which is something that's interested me for a little while. Obviously, being a reenactor, see, we're not brave enough to go and camp in the winter. I mean, uh, you know, it's a bit cold. Uh, we do sometimes go out in like sort of early, early year, in early in the year, but not that early. Um, yeah, so um, we're just going to, uh, first, obviously, we're going to talk about camp life in general. Um, this is something that you've been studying for a little while now, isn't it? I am familiar with it from studying the lives of the soldiers and officers in the armies. Okay. <clears throat> so, um, daily duties of camp life. Do you know any, any, uh, any of that? Absolutely. So, um, if we're talking about camp in a more permanent setting, um, uh, as opposed to camp overnight when an army is on the march, um, there's going to be some things that would be the same in both um, positions. And um, I know we coordinated on a few notes here, so I'll list a few. And then maybe if you want to jump in and add more information yeah, as we're going that. along. Um, so one of the things that is kind of interesting is revelry or that early morning bugle call to wake everybody up, the uh, 1860s alarm clock for the soldiers there. Um, in the spring and summer months, it was usually at 5 a.m., um, but according to John Billings in Hardtack and Coffee, they moved it up an hour in the winter, so 6 a.m. And one, of that, one thing that's important to note is you're going to work off the daylight as well. There's no daylight savings time um, in America during the Civil War period. So part of that's going to be how much sunlight do you have and how are you going to work within that time range. And then, of course, after you get everybody up, you have to get into formation for a roll call. Then you'll have surgeons call, things like that, to check on the, the um, health and numbers, if you will, of the particular unit. Okay. And uh, normally they have breakfast, don't they, at some point? And then uh, what always made me laugh is uh, there was a, a, a guy that spoke on the uh, documentary, Ken Burns documentary, and he mentions... Uh, um, breakfast was followed by drill and then more drill and then we had after that we had drill and then after that more drill so they love drill don't they <laughs> <laughs> so and then um, later in the day they'd have their mid meal um, usually referred to as dinner um, in that time period and then there might be more drill but one thing that's important to note is units could be detailed and this could go down to a squad or a company level or it might be a whole regiment or a brigade that's going to be detailed off to do some other duties like maybe picketing um, that was really important in the winter to keep the camp safe um, Elisha Hunt Rhodes writes about being detailed with part of his regiment to go out and build roads um, to try to build some transportation system through this mud and mire um, of a Virginia winter. Um, of course, there might be more drill if they were just stuck in camp. And then sometimes in the evening, there might be a dress parade or formation. Um, that wouldn't always be practical in the winter, but um, certainly it was possible in some situations. And then in the evening, what, do you, what have you researched and found out that they so did? Leisure time. Now, what sort of things were they doing? Cards, maybe? Gambling? Things like that, maybe? 
Well, quite possibly. Um, you weren't really supposed to be gambling in camp, but um, we all know it happened. And um, reading is another thing. Um, different um, agents with the U.S. Sanitary Commission or the U.S. Christian Commission actually reference in the winter of 1862 to 63 that soldiers were asking for things to read. Um, so that might be literature, it might be religious tracts, newspapers, things like that. So you do have quite a few soldiers in the Army of the Potomac who are literate. Um, the majority can read and um, do some form of writing. Uh, writing letters would also be something that occupied their time. Um, many more letters were written than have survived in the archives. Um, that was their form of communication. So if you, the way we might grab our phone and send a text to see how someone's doing, or maybe write an email to tell them what we did in the day, or place a phone call, um, they're going to write letters to stay connected with friends, family, loved ones back home. Um, so those are some things they might have done in the evenings. Also, you're going to have to keep gear in good condition. Um, so that's going to be cleaning your gun, cleaning your accoutrements. Um, if you're a cavalryman, you're going to have additional chores because you have to take care of your horse's gear as well. And then, you know, finding ways to stay huddled and warm in the cold winter months. Definitely. So the army didn't fight a lot in winter. One reason being roads are impassable most of the time. Um, a couple of times they did during 1862 and 63. As uh, some people know, there was a battle in Fredericksburg. Uh, in between that, there was a mud march, which uh, we all know how that ended. And uh, there was also in the West, there was a battle at Stones River where you have the Confederates camp um, in Murfreesboro for a little while, for a time. Um, so, you know, they, they, they did camp for long periods, but during obviously this little period, sometimes they didn't. Um, but in Virginia, there were lots of, they, they, they were camped pretty much the whole year of, of the war, every, every, throughout the war, wasn't they really? So there were camps all across the fighting areas of Virginia and every winter you have both armies, um, which will eventually be called the Army of the Potomac and the Army of Northern Virginia, Union and Confederate respectively there. Um, they will go into some form of winter camp in, for every winter season. Um, and so that's going to be your more permanent type camp for the Union Army. That's going to be Stafford in the winter of 62 to 63, out closer to Brandy Station, um, which is to the west in 63-64 around Petersburg in the final winter. And I guess I missed the first winter, so that's going to be up closer to Washington, D.C. So really and truly, they was, you know, I mean, the Army of Potomac mainly camp, camped most of the year round, didn't they, in the in Virginia area, though, mostly. I mean, I know they moved around, but they would have. Is there actually any examples left still of some of those camps? Yes, so um, there are the remains of winter camps. Um, the, the camping that took place more in the campaigning season, so the spring, summer, and fall, um, that usually wasn't stationary quite as long. So it's not always as easy to find remains of those camps. 
um, although some examples or locations are known and exist. But if we're focusing in here on the winter camps a little bit, yes, you can find remains and ruins of them. Um, one area that's been preserved, and it was the effort was spearheaded by a gentleman named Glenn Trimmer and Friends of Stafford uh, Civil War, I believe was the name of the group. And they have preserved over 40 acres of a camping site from the Army of the Potomac's 11th Corps, so units um, from that corps. They're not exactly sure which ones. They think perhaps New York regiments, because um, when they've done their archaeology studies and such, they found uh, New York buttons and other symbols out there. So in fact, I was out at Stafford Civil War Park. It's now county um, held and preserved um, last weekend. And you can see depressions in the ground where um, this is where a hut would have been or the stacked stones, um, the remains of chimneys and things like that. And that's the area that's been preserved, but just driving through Stafford County, if you know what you're looking for, you can see a lot of ruins of these camps and camping sites. So that's really cool. So you can actually visit that site then. I would definitely recommend going to the county park if you want to be getting out and exploring. Um, people don't take too kindly to strangers walking through their front no, yard. They'll no, look at the camps. So go to, go to the place yeah. that's been preserved. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so is there any differences between the winter and summer camps? Obviously, there's probably quite big differences. Yes, so a winter camp is going to be much more permanent, generally speaking. Um, so it's going to be somewhere where a unit, I'll go with the regiment level, um, a regiment's probably going to expect to stay there for several months, at least through the cold period. So let's say they go into winter camp in um, January, they're probably going to be there at least through the end of March, maybe even into April. Um, we definitely see that in the winter of 62-63, um, where you don't really have winter camps getting broken up until the mid to end of April as the Chancellorsville campaign begins. So a summer camp, summer's the campaigning season. So yes, guys are going to camp for the night, um, but it's going to be much less permanent and um, not as long in one place unless it's a siege or a fortification type scenario. Okay. Of course, one of the biggest things about camp life was diseases in camp. And, uh, you know, some of them were horrendous. I mean, uh, some big casualties and big uh, loss of life through, through diseases, wasn't there? Yes. What sort of diseases were we looking at? So pretty much the types of diseases that Civil War soldiers are going to encounter throughout their soldiering um, time of life. So some of the things that were going to be even worse or compounded in the winter, it's going to be effects from the cold. So things you, you're not going to have frostbite in the middle of summer, but you could have that. Um, there's accounts of guys going on picket duty and literally freezing to death. And that being um, a fear of guys going on picket. Um, some of the diseases encountered are going to be pneumonia, typhoid, dysentery. Malaria is not going to be as prominent in the winter because that's transmitted by mosquitoes. So that's more of a summer disease unless a soldier has recurring malaria, which then he might go through a bout of it in the winter. Cholera measles, um, particularly in newer formed regiments who haven't gone through that phase of everybody getting sick. 
And then you have guys in such close quarters that diseases are going to spread quickly. Um, one thing that is important to always keep in mind is that more soldiers in the Civil War will die of disease than actually of bullets, shrapnel, or other effects from the actual battlefield. Um, at least 3,500 Union soldiers died in the winter camps in Stafford County um, in the winter of 62 to 63. And one thing that um, I've been looking into a little bit and just considering is there's accounts of guys who are sharing huts, so messmates, friends that they've known from back home, they've enlisted with these guys, probably gone to school with them, helped in each other's shops and fields. And, you know, there's accounts of my best friend died today. And so there is going to be a mental health toll on the personal side, um, not only dealing with the death in campaign and battle, but this death that is very close, actually, in your temporary cabin home um, in the winter period. So I think that's something that is always sobering, but important to keep in mind when talking about these things. Yeah. And also, I, uh, there was a, a thing I read about lice. Um, lice was a problem, but in Virginia, it tended to be a bigger issue in the summer. Um, lice are is are one of those insects that kind of die off when it's cold, like the mosquitoes. Um, I found a quote from a Confederate soldier. He said he would much rather spend six winters in camp than one summer's march. Um, and he, so that's part of the complaining about the lice. And then um, a couple of weeks ago, I was reading some letters by Oliver Norton, who was a Union um, soldier. And he is very thankful that on the Gettysburg campaign, he has not got lice yet. Apparently, a whole bunch of um, his comrades in the same unit were dealing with the issue. But from what I've looked at so far, it doesn't seem to have been as bad in the winter because the little bugs die. Oh, thank goodness for that. <laughs> a little break, right? Yeah, horrible. Um, so U.S. Sanitary Commission was set up, um, wasn't it? When was it um, when Joseph Hooker took over? I think he was a bit of a uh, he was uh, he didn't like the way things were in the camp, and they started looking at um, conditions of the camp and 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 set about changing things. Uh, obviously, at this point in time, they're learning a bit more about personal hygiene and staying clean and stuff like that, and also understanding diseases better and how they spread. So um, the U.S. Sanitary Commission, that was set up during the Civil War, wasn't it? Yes, it was. And it was actually started in the first year of the war, 1861, if you've got any new uh, viewers joining us, um, new to the topic. So the Sanitary Commission, it is um, supporting the troops from the North, so it's union-based. Um, and they sent agents into camps summer and winter and they would go tell the officers oh this isn't clean this isn't you know a good setup for keeping your men healthy and there was a lot of friction between the sanitary commission and the military for a number of uh, periods or years um, because they would see it as civilians interfering with the military and yet the Sanitary Commission would often show up after battles with supplies, food, medicines, um, bandages, these things that were desperately needed by the army. So it, it was really important that the two entities, military civilian, learn how to work together. And it is during General Joseph Hooker's um, first 
few weeks in command that he starts making efforts to pay better attention to the health conditions in the camp. He also wants to stop this um, desertions that are just draining the manpower out of his army. And so he does find ways to help improve the soldiers' lives as well. Okay. So winter camps itself. So um, I have got some examples here to bring up. Hopefully this works. So here we go. We've got, um, nice. I think this is what you was talking about in Stafford uh, with the lot. So this is a chimney, is it? Um, the stack here. And yes. uh, so is that how they would build their, their winter tents? So that's one example. And different units would use different methods of construction for their winter quarters. Um, the one that would be, I believe, on the left of the screen, hopefully it's showing that way for everyone who is watching it, um, the modern photograph. You can see that they've stacked up logs at the bottom, and then that's actually the tent shelter that they've put over the top. And yes, most tents, they come up with some way to have some sort of fire or maybe even a stove, that would be more for the officers, um, to help keep warm. So in this photograph, you can see they've stacked logs and then they've used mud and clay to plaster those logs so that they wouldn't just go up in flames. I think, I can't quite tell in that original photograph, but there are original photographs out there where you'll also see that they've used barrels on top of the chimney to help um, build it up because wood was running scarce in Virginia during the Civil War. And I know that can sound kind of strange to think about, but when you put hundreds of thousands of men on in two different armies in an area, they're going to start stripping the land of the wood. And that happened. Um, there's accounts of this whole area of central Virginia. The landscape changed, um, not just because battles were fought there, but because trees are felled to build roads, to build camps, to get firewood just to stay warm. And some soldiers write about wood getting scarce in their areas. So they're not going to usually build like a full log cabin like we might imagine um, settlers in the American West building or see in those instances. But they'll find ways to build like this. There's, um, well, I don't want to jump ahead. Did you have some other photographs? No, no, that's you? fine. You carry on. Oh, okay. I was enjoying um, myself then. Sometimes um, there's other sketches out there of them building these like lean-to shelters where um, it almost reminds me of pictures that we see in like Boy Scout or um, do your Boy Scouts in England? Yes. I don't know if I'm using the right term. <laughs> yeah, we do, that's fine. Okay, um, so you know like two uprights, a ridge pole, and then they're taking evergreen branches and piling them on. And there's sketches that Edwin Forbes did that show these what look like kind of flimsy shelters and they're just covered with snow, which is gonna be cold, but it might also help insulate just a little bit. And so part of it depends on the leadership that a regiment has. And I was reading about the 16th Michigan's winter camp and they write, that it was well laid out and it was well organized and the shelters were adequate and they were able to stay warm. And the soldier reporting on this credited it to the untiring um, innovations and leadership of his regimental commanders. 
And I see there's some other photos up here on the screen. And the, the one on the top, the large one, is a great photo. You can see how um, there's those winter shelters on either side. There's room for wagons to come on in with supplies. It even looks like they've laid logs or some type of planking maybe over the ground, probably a form of a corduroy road, which would be felling trees across um, muddy roads so that supplies, men can move a little easier through there. Um, I think in the lower photo, we might actually have a barrel on top of that chimney. Yes. It's a little blurry, yeah, yeah. a little hard to tell, but I think it is. Yeah, so it looks like it to me. Yeah. Um, so that's where it is. Mm -hmm. that's, yeah. So, and then um, just this afternoon, I was looking at some accounts, and it sounds like some units were also used the topography of their assigned camping area to their advantage. So if they had to camp on a hillside, the guys might partially burrow their uh, shelter into the hillside so they didn't have to build as much. Um, you'll find them uh, making plasters out of clay and mud, filling in the chinking um, of the logs that are being used. They'll use straw um, to fill in the cracks at the bottom if they're camping in canvas. Um, until they can get a more permanent situation. So I think you mentioned that you do reenacting or living history. So just kind of think about ways that um, you would try to fill in um, the uh, space at the bottom of your tent um, if you didn't have that sod cloth um, to try to stay warm until you could get a more permanent shelter built. And that's what they were doing. And the men's skills... Um, for the mud and the plastering, sometimes guys in the unit who'd worked as stonemasons or brickwork, um, they had skill on this is how we can put things together with mud so that it uh -huh. is a little more insulated and less drafty. So guys are going to be working together to make the situation as good as possible because they want to survive winter and live to fight another day, live to go home to their families and their occupations after the war. Of course. And I think people seem to forget that, um, you know, the army is that big and they take up such a massive area, you know. And also I think people forget about the logistics behind an army. We always think of the battles, but we don't think of, it really interests me, the logistics behind an army. It's just mind boggling, isn't it, really, when you think about it? it really is. And you think about... Um... So the Union Army in the winter of 62-63 can, can move supplies partially by water and by rail, but to actually get them into the camps, they're still relying on equestrian-drawn conveyances of some sort. So it might be mules hauling, might be horses. Um, I see some supply wagons maybe in that photo we were just looking at. Um, but you have to remember that putting the animals into this type of conditions of mud, of almost constant wet rain, snow, um, that deteriorates their health. Those animals have to be fed, often with supplies that they are hauling. So it kind of becomes this equation of, okay, we brought in this much supplies, but you know they hauled this much forage just to feed the horses. Um, so it would, it's kind of this difficult logistical situation and it improves after Joseph Hooker takes command, um, but they're still working on it in 1863, the Union Army. 
um, the Confederate Army is so hampered by the logistical problem that toward the end of the winter season, they actually send the first corps, um, so Longstreet's corps, Army of Northern Virginia, is sent away because they can't feed the army out of the land around Fredericksburg any longer. And that happens with several um, detachments of the Confederate cavalry as well. They're sent away because there's no more forage in the area. So absolutely, supplies and logistics are so important to look at. And also for the local community, which is, uh, you know, you, they're using all of their, their stuff, aren't they? So they're going hungry as well, probably. Um, it's horrible for them. Um, anyway, so, um, okay, so keeping warm then. So they would have, some of them, like you're saying, would have had the, uh, the fires to keep them warm in their cabins or their, their makeup, makeshift tents. Um, keeping dry that must have been quite hard for them um, would they have done things like take their socks off at night and dry them and things like that well I think that's probably going to depend on the individual situation and uh, hopefully you had a dry pair of socks to put on so you could um, you know take off that wet pair um, most union soldiers are going to be issued um, winter clothing uniforms um, so you'll see sketches, um, sometimes you'll even see them in paintings of the overcoats, um, things to keep warm. So those are going to be made out of wool, um, just like we do in our own winters, layer up, <laughs> lots of layers. It's going to help keep warm. A lot of soldiers wrote about um, being wet. And we know that if you're wet and then it's really cold outside, that can be dangerous, um, you don't want to freeze, but you also don't want to get sick. And it's going to be hard to get warm. I mean, if we're in that situation in our modern times, we probably will be a little miserable until we get to home or our destination. But then we're going to be able to go into a nice warm building and get dried off. These guys are going into a warmer shelter, but it's not warm, but by what we would call warm in our own modern era. So a lot of guys write about being cold all the time and struggling to get dry or keep dry. One thing that is worth noting is um, they had what they would call, I think they called them ponchos. Um, I think it's referenced in hardtack and coffee, and you might have more information on this, um, but it would be like this oil skin cloth that they could then put over and it kind of acted like a rain gear trying to keep some of that rain off. Yeah, I know, I know that had quite a multi-purpose use, actually. I think that sort of, that, that, you, I think there's a, yeah, the poncho, um, I mean, we use it in reenacting, but it is used, and they even use it for gaming as well. They used to turn it over and draw a checkered, checkers board on it or something like that, similar to that. Right. And they would also use it for, in the summer, obviously, insulating the ground, maybe. So I think most of them were, were issued with that, but I think it was maybe a little bit later in the war. I'm not 100% sure on that. Um, but yeah, they definitely had things like that from what, because I've read Hardtack and Coffee as well. So yeah, I'm sure it's referenced in that. Anyway, so um, also, I mean, so sleeping, how many would normally sleep in a, a tent? Well, there, there again, it's going to depend on how big they're making their winter shelter. It's going to depend on the unit. Um, but usually you're going to have at least four guys um, living in these little shelters together at minimum. 
Um, again, some of it will depend on how, how strong the unit is um, and how many huts they decide to build. But basically, no one is going to get a hut to themselves. So hopefully you find a way to get along with your messmates or at least find a way to tolerate them. Yeah, because don't get your own bed either. You're going to get to share with everybody. So everybody put your blankets together and there it's go. going to be a sleepover. <laughs> So they were issued with blankets, wasn't they, as well? Usually, yes. Yeah. Um, anyway, so also then there's the boredom part of it. I mean, and missing family and loved ones. That must have been hard for a lot of these guys. Right. And so they, they find ways to try to occupy their time and their minds when they're not um, out doing their duties or in that day-to-day um, struggle to live, struggle to survive. Um, so some of the things that I like to point out is, um, as I mentioned earlier, reading different forms of newspapers, literature, um, religious reading. Um, some men found their faith strengthened um, in the winter months. They would spend time going to prayer meetings, um, chapel calls, things like that. Um, one thing that Joseph Hooker helped with as he took over command of the army was getting the mail and um, packages from home into the camps a little quicker. Excuse me. And that, of course, had a real boost to morale. Um, and the support or lack of support from the home front, pardon me, is really important to always keep in mind. And one of the things that we see in soldiers' letters from this winter period of 62 to 63 is some are writing and saying, don't believe what you read in the newspapers. Um, you know, don't buy into the copperheadism, which was kind of this movement to um, negotiate peace with the South. And, um, you know, the army doesn't believe in that. Don't believe what the papers are saying. So there can be this disconnect and you find soldiers writing home and saying, please tell me, basically, you're, you're still supporting us. You've still got my back. Um, so that was really important as well, just knowing that they were supported on the home front. And one thing that soldiers could look forward to, and I think this is important to point out, is furlough. Um, so furloughs were kind of a mess when Ambrose Burnside was in command, um, but as Joseph Hooker came in and started trying to organize and standardize, um, he realized they had to get control of the furlough situation because men needed to be able to go home and see their families, but it needed to be controlled so that the army knew where they were. So what he did was he basically standardized a 15-day furlough and then sent out directions to the regiments on who could be going on furlough at certain times, things like that. Um, he started putting some regulations on officer furloughs. So um, those officers couldn't just say, bye, I'm going to, you know, go spend winter at the hotel in Washington. Um, so that was something that had a positive effect. And there again, we see it reflected in soldiers' journals and letters, you know, um, next month I should be up for furlough. You know, I can't wait to come home and see you all. And that can have a big effect on morale as well. Just knowing that um, they would get to see their loved ones or, you know, get a little break from the war in this winter camp was a good thing for them. Was that a little bit different for the Confederates, maybe, the furlough system? I don't think they was allowed to do that, was they? Or was that similar for them? 
You know, I believe that there were furloughs. I'm not as familiar. I don't remember off the top of my head how that was working, but you definitely do have soldiers who are able to get furloughs. Um, not as easy for the officers. Um, and then you've got some commanding generals who are just like, yeah, we're not giving out furloughs right now. Um, but if they could find a way, if and this would go for both armies, if they could find a way to make the furlough system work, then in theory, you wouldn't have as much of the desertion when the guy really does intend to come back later. You find some of that happening. I can think of some examples on the Confederate side where a guy would be like, I got to desert because my wife is sick and, you know, I need to go take care of her and the children. He intends to come back, but his officers won't give him a furlough. So then, of course, he's labeled a deserter, things like that. Um, so, Yeah, I've heard of lots of accounts like that as well, where the wife has been literally sent a letter to her husband in the Confederate Army saying, you've got to come home because we are destitute. We've got nowhere to live. We've got no food. And they're stuck between you know, fighting for their country or what they believe in or deserting and going home, you know, so that must have been a horrible decision for some of them guys to make. Um, so anyway, um, what's, the, well, there's a massive difference. We know this, um, um, the, the lower ranked men and obviously the officers. So, you know, they are going to probably have a nicer time in the winter, aren't they? Especially the higher up ones. Yes. So um, if you're a general, you're probably going to have winter quarters at a, um, southern civilian home that will be taken over um, to be used as headquarters. Um, colonels, um, other officers might do that as well. Um, there's some good examples from Elisha Hunt Rhodes, who's a lieutenant in the 2nd Rhode Island Infantry. He writes about messing with his fellow officers. They kind of build a nicer cabin altogether. I believe he describes that they had a floor in it and they kind of built these um, what we would call bunk beds. Um, so they had a nicer situation there. Um, there's some accounts of Confederate officers spending the winter in tents, though. Um, that would be some of Stonewall Jackson's staff. You know, Jackson's staying in an office at the at Moss Neck Plantation. He's out in an office building and his staff is under canvas for much of the winter. Um, so it kind of depended on where you were and what resources were available to the regiment. Um, one thing that I've noted is officers were usually warmer. So they might have the access to that camp stove or more fuel or more supplies in that sense. So if you want to have the better chance of staying warm in the winter, I would recommend promoting to officer if you're in the Civil War period. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. Um, so also, I know you touched on a little bit about supplies and that, but um, food for most men. Um, so how easy was that and what sort of food were they eating during the winter? Did it differ from the summer? Well, in some ways it would, um, but in other ways it's going to be pretty standard. So assuming, and this would be a big assumption, that um, supply trains are able to move and your logistics system is working, then soldiers are going to be getting their standard rations. Um, so that's going to be hardtack, um, beef or salt pork. Um, for the Union Army, there's usually some rice and dried peas in there, um, coffee, sugar, salt, things like that. Um, so just like when they were on the march, the guys are going to get issued their rations. They'll usually cook a lot of it together. They're kind of form that mess 
put someone in charge of cooking, particularly if you're in winter camp, you know, this, it's this guy's job to cook for all of us. We'll, you know, give him all the rations and let him make something that's hopefully tasty and warm. Um, one thing that would be a little easier in the winter situation is the sutlers would be able to get to the soldiers a bit easier. So these are going to be civilian um, traveling merchants might be a good way to describe them um, that are going to bring those extra niceties to the camp. And I actually marked a passage um, because once the soldiers in the Union Army are getting paid on a little bit more regular basis, then they have money to send back to their homes, but also to be able to supplement their diet a little bit more. So I know I keep coming back to him, um, but here he is again, Elisha Hunt Rhodes. He writes, we pay big prices for things to eat. Butter is 60 cents per pound, cheese the same. Bread, 25 cents per loaf, soft crackers, 30 cents per pound. Cookies, which children and soldiers love, three cents a piece. Today, I found a small codfish at 16 cents per pound. It tasted good. Um, another thing to note is once Joseph Hooker comes in and is getting the supply system moving better for the Union Army, he's able to make sure that they get fresh meat. So that's going to be they're actually bringing in live cattle and slaughtering them in the camps. Um, they're also able to get raw vegetables. So imagine like potatoes, carrots, things like that. Um, and then soft bread. So not the hard tack, but they're actually able to build ovens and bake fresh bread, um, similar to what we would have as like a wheat bread, probably. Um, so that just having good food that's not hard tack, salt, pork, coffee can also be a big um, morale booster. It's also going to be something that's uh, smells better cooking. It's going to cook for a while. You're going to be able to stay warm while even doing that cooking. So that's something that's helpful to note when we were talking about food in that winter period. Yeah. So if you're static, you're probably eating better then, aren't you really in a way? I would imagine with all that extra stuff coming in. Good man, uh, Joseph, uh, Joseph Hooker. That's what I say. Didn't last very long though, did he? Bless his heart. <laughs> well, not with the Army of the Potomac. He, he really helped to reform the Army. I mean, he does reorganization, boosts the morale, builds that Army of the Potomac into the fighting machine um, that famously is going to hold the lines and win the battle at Gettysburg. Yeah, that's yeah right. they lose at Chancellorsville, and Hooker is definitely part of that problem, but I think it's worth taking another look at his um, organizational leadership, and um, he did some really powerful things. He did. Okay, so the men from the Deep South never experienced cold weather before or even seen snow. Um, I haven't seen snow for about four years. Only, only on your pictures that you took the other day. Um, we're supposed to get a snowstorm tonight, but it probably won't. My kids have never seen snow. Oh, wow. Yeah, only on pictures. She keeps asking me, Daddy, when's it going to snow? I don't know. Sorry. Uh, is it going to snow? No, sorry. Anyway, one day, one day. Um, anyway, so yeah. Um, what was this like for those guys coming from Georgia and Florida and, and Texas and places like that? They must have been thinking, crikey, you know? Right. So, so we've crossed the river now and we're at the Army of Northern Virginia, um, which is, was about 72,000 strong after the Battle of Fredericksburg, so in this winter period. 
and yeah, snow is exciting. It's this cold white stuff and it sticks on the ground and oh, we can squish it together and make <laughs> snowballs. Yeah. And there's, there's some great accounts out there. I'm sure you're familiar with some of them. Yeah. One of my favorites um, comes from Kershaw's Brigade and then the Regiment of the Third, um, South Carolina. And it's this account of Georgians and South Carolinians and their officers have coordinated. In some ways, it reminds me a little bit of a reenactment battle um, because they've piled up these mounds of snowballs. I mean, they're ready. And at the appointed hour, the officers rally everybody and they go out and they have this big snowball fight. Well, it wasn't completely innocent all the time. And um, the officer who's, or, who's writing this from the third South Carolina, he said that if officers were caught, um, there were, they could get quite the beating. Um, and it, it might not all be in a good fun. Another thing, and this seems to have gone for the enlisted men and the officers, if the opposing side captured them as prisoners, they would haul them behind the lines and start stuffing snow down their jacket and undershirt, which, oh, that's just going to be cold. Like, imagine dropping ice cubes. Uh, I've I've experienced that before. (laughs) Exactly. It's like, oh, that would be really cold. Um, There's another account, and I can't remember which soldier or unit this comes from but there's so we'll go with it's a story um that the confederates thought it was really fun to throw snowballs at general longstreet and they would just pelt him with snowballs as he was riding through camp well he finally like made that a rule that you could throw as many snowballs as you wanted, but not at the general. So then it would happen that if he was coming through, you'd hear this order go down the line, hold your fire, the general's coming through. So there's, there's some great stories that come out of that period. Do you think anyone was brave enough to throw one at Robert E. Lee? <laughs> oh, yeah, I'd like to know Can if you someone imagine? did. <laughs> I, I, very tempted. <laughs> I, I think they already had him in some form of reverence at that point, so I don't know if anyone would have attempted it. <laughs> no, they might have been, they, they might have got beaten up by their fellow colleagues. Yeah, um, yeah. So um, I did hear one account, and again, I don't know whether it's uh, you know I've heard it from uh, Gary Gallagher actually. Um, he he says in his lectures that there was actually fatalities during one of these big snowball fights, oh, wow. and even broken bones. But again, it's only one account, so more research is needed for that but it's 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 just it, it must have been funny to watch watching these guys having a big snowball fight during this serious period you know there's always that little bit of you know uh, normality i suppose in a way isn't there it's quite Absolutely. quite cool and if if it, if gary gallagher presented it in one of his lectures i'd be pretty confident that That's the accounts true. out there and it happened <laughs> he's he's a good researcher <laughs> it's on the american civil war lecture series on audible Oh, nice. It's brilliant, honestly. I mean, I, I listened to it in about a week. It was that good. Nice. That guy really knows his stuff, don't he? He it's does. Amazing. I've heard him lecture, and he's one of my favorite authors. So, oh, yeah, he's, he's got lots of good resources out there. So, overall, then, it's not really a nice place to be in the winter, is it, winter camps? Or maybe it is, I don't know, because they're standing still for longer. Right, it kind of depends. Um there's not as much a chance that you're going to get killed by a bullet. You might die from disease. Um, but yeah, it kind of depends. Overall, I think soldiers would appreciate the break, if you will. We see that a little bit in their letters and their journals. Um, 
but a lot of them, by the time spring is coming, they are anxious to get back into campaigning and maybe this will be the year that ends the war and things like that. Um, personally, I would not have wanted to do a winter in a Civil War camp. I think it would have been very cold. Um, but with modern conveniences, modern shelter, heat, uh, warm jackets, and things like that, winter is one of my favorite seasons to go out on a battlefield or to explore winter camps because the leaves are down, you can see a lot. Um, today I was out at Spotsylvania Battlefield looking at some trenches that I hadn't really had a chance to study before and found some trenches that I hadn't seen in the summer. because I'm so jealous of you. The, the leaves were so thick. So keep it in mind, if you or your listeners are, are planning a trip, winter can be a good time or really early spring before the leaves come up. If you want to see earthworks and stuff like that, winter is awesome for that. So you, again, you live in the uh, Fredericksburg area, so you've got Spotsylvania, is it? And uh, the wilderness and... Oh, Chancellorsville. Yeah, it's all there on your doorstep, isn't it? It is. And... Um, it wasn't always. Um, I grew up in Southern California where it doesn't really snow. So yeah, it's been so a big weather really change. Well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's, uh, it's exciting to be here where there's a lot of history and be able to research it and find ways to share it in photographs and, you know, discussions like this with other people who are interested. Cool. Anyway, Sarah, thank you so much for coming to talk to me. I really well, thank you. For, thank um, you so much yeah. for inviting us. And, uh, Guys, make sure you go and support uh, Central Virginia Battlefields Trust because they're doing such an amazing job. And there's not many of you guys, is there, doing doing what you're doing? We are as we're a local grassroots organization. So um, we've saved over 1,350 acres. And stay tuned on our social media, on our website. Sign up for our newsletters because um, we have some really exciting news that is going to break really soon. So. Ooh. Stay tuned. Spoiler alert. <laughs> thank you. Sarah, Can't tell you so what much. it is, but something's coming. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, thank you so much. Cheers. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye-bye.